0: Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Pastor Josh Karstensen is continuing a series on John, where, in John 8, we see Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders. It's a power struggle over who is right. Oftentimes, we find ourselves disagreeing with others. The question at hand isn't what's right, but rather who is right. Ultimately, there is only one person who is right, and he also establishes what 's right after the message you 're invited to answer some application questions which you can find on our website right under the worship service video now here 's today 's teaching Welcome to Sunday morning yeah, happy mother 's day. Um, as this week as i 'm kind of preparing for mother 's Day and opening up my Bible to John eight. I gotta be a little bit honest and say initially I wasn't very excited about our text for Mother's Day. You get into John 8 and you're like, oh great, woman caught in adultery, perfect Mother's Day. I mean, it's absolutely like, you know, nice, light, fun, let's honor moms. Uh, and you get there and you're like, I don't know if that's quite light and honoring and fun, but, you know, I, I do believe, as I've been studying this, that God has something for all of us, whether you're a mom, whether you're anyone uh, in here today. And God's Word, I don't think it's a mistake. I think there's something beautiful here. So we will be in John 8. I'm not taking a hiatus. We're going to keep plowing through. And last week, if if I'm, uh, again, being totally transparent, I I was struggling last week, um, you know, we're, we're about a, I don't know, a year some odd into the whole COVID world. And there's just been a lot of tension, obviously, this last year and a lot of really hard decisions that need to be made. You know, a lot of hard conversations, conversations about what do you do with COVID, conversations about race, conversations about equality, conversations about all kinds of different things. And they're really good conversations to have, but they're, they've been really challenging conversations. Right, And I've shared this before, but one of the most challenging parts about a lot of these conversations is it's really hard to know what's true because I, I hear so many different conflicting ideas of what is true around a lot of these topics. Right? You, you think about all the health challenges around COVID and all the conversations around it. And again, you're hearing so many different competing truths right? Um, as a leader, it's hard. You know, you hear things like, okay, everyone, you always need to wear a mask all the time. And then you hear other people say, well, there's states that are wide open and they're doing just fine. And, and you hear states are like, okay, kids, absolutely, they should not be in school. Then you hear other places, no, they're in school and the hospitalization rates are exactly the same. What are you doing? This is terrible for them. And, you know, you hear things like you need to shower your whole body with bleach twice a day. And then you hear, no, that's a really bad idea, which is a really bad idea. No one really said that. Um, well, so anyways, um, you... <laughs> Yeah, you hear, you hear. You need to be six feet apart, and then you hear not not six. You need to be three feet apart. And then MIT says, well, it doesn't matter if you're six feet or sixty feet. If you're in a room, you're all exposed. And then, um, man, and then you get to church, and I, I'm again, I'm just sharing from my heart. Like this last week, as I'm talking to multiple different people, I'll, I'll talk to someone on the phone. I'll talk to someone in person, and they'll say, man, um, we 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 really need to lock it down for a long time. It's it's really dangerous at church. Um, I I don't feel comfortable being there. And then the next phone call, I'll talk to someone and say, yeah, I left church. I left Northwest Hills because you make us wear masks. And that's ridiculous that uh, you have to wear a mask. And and we have like extremes in our church. And for a while, it's like, okay, I can plow through. But after a while, it's just like, this is exhausting. It's, It's exhausting to try to know like, what is the right thing to do? You know, you as a leader, you want to you make policies that, that are good and right, but it's hard when you don't know all the time what is right. It's really hard to know what to do when you don't always know what's true. And then you get to John 8, and it didn't help. Because the very beginning of John 8, if you're going to look... I, I actually didn't test this in your Bibles. It definitely says this in mine, but go to John 8... And there's a little heading at the front of John eight, and it says this: the earlier manuscripts do not include John seven fifty three to eight eleven. Well, great, is this scripture or not? I just want to know: can you, is this scripture or not? Because I have never gotten up here and preached something that isn't scripture. So, can someone just give me a straightforward answer: is this part of the Bible or is this not? And so, naturally, I go on a pretty big adventure last week trying to figure out is this scripture. And so I opened up six different commentaries and I'm reading a bunch of commentaries and guess what? They all say something a little bit different. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, right? You'll you'll read some. Absolutely. This is scripture. Uh, John wrote this. Absolutely. It belongs right here. hundred percent. You'll read other commentaries that literally they'll give you a paragraph per word. And then this entire section of scripture is just missing. There's not even like a footnote that says, hey, earliest manuscripts do you not have this." It's just, it's like this punch in the mouth. We completely disregard this as scripture. We're just going to skip it completely. It's not even there. So I'm like, okay, this isn't incredibly helpful. Is this scripture or not? And so I'm like, okay, let me, let me do this. I'm going to listen to some of my favorite preachers. So I listened to a couple of different sermons of my favorite preachers on this passage. And guess what? Half of them say this is scripture. And the other half say, absolutely. This is not scripture was <laughs> like, God, can I just, can I get some truth? Like, can I please get some consistency here? Did John write this? Did, did Luke write it? If, if, if John wrote it, does it belong here? Because some people have it here. Some people have it in John 21. Some people have it in John 7. Some people have it in Luke 21. You know, God, is this really your word? Does it belong here or not? Can I just get some thing that is true, please? I'm getting tired of not knowing what's true. And as I studied more and more, it just became very apparent that what this scripture does do is it corroborates with the rest of Scripture and it shows us the heart of Jesus. And so there is something for us to learn here. I think there is a a message that will show us what it means to truly live by the time we're said and done. So what is this text? Right? Why is it debated? What do we see? What can we learn? What's our response? So we're going to begin by opening up John 8, which again puts me in another dilemma. Do we stand? right? Because we only stand for God's word. right? And then when we're done reading it, do we say, this is the word of the Lord? And do we say, thanks be to God? I don't know. But you, sometimes as a leader, you just have to make a decision. So my decision is going to be, we're going to stand. And at the end, I'm not going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can wrestle with that however you want. So we're going to stand. <laughs> Welcome to 2021. Good night. Here we go. John, starting in 7.53 all the way to 8.11. They went to each of his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the, law of Moses, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You can take a seat. Why the debate? Right, You don't reach many portions of Scripture and have debate like this. But I'll say this to begin with. Everyone believes that this actually happened right? There, there's not debate about whether or not this happened. There's a lot of things that happen that aren't necessarily recorded in scripture. Remember at the very end of John, the very last thing in John, he talks about um, that there's all kinds of things that Jesus did. And he supposes that if everything was written, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to take up the space to write them all out. So the, the issue isn't whether or not this happened or not. Everyone agrees that this happened, but why the debate? Right, I'm going to give you just a couple of reasons for and against why people say this should or shouldn't belong in Scripture. So first of all, in the earliest of all the manuscripts, and this is, this is a long sermon that I'm not going to get into, and a lot of preachers do, a lot of preachers, they'll take about half their sermon to talk about uh, transmission in early manuscripts, but until about the 5th century, um, this text is not found in the earliest of manuscripts, and there's a lot of reasons why people believe that is true. Um, some people will say, people like Augustine, uh, he'll, he'll say, hey, you know what? In the early church, if, if all the wives heard this message, it would give them the biggest license to go live however they wanted. So the early church fathers just said, I don't know, this seems a little, a little kind of anyone can go do what they want. So we're just going to leave this out out of a little bit of fear. Because it seems like Jesus just, whatever, free live, we forgive you all, I condemn you no more. Uh, the other, another reason why people think that it may not belong here is it it doesn't really seem to fit in the story. If you just read John seven and you continue reading it all the way through John eight, it really does feel like it's just plopped in the middle of nowhere, right? Because you get the the festival that we talked about last week and Jesus stands up and, you know, I am um, the water, you know, you know, come to me all who are thirsty. I will give you rivers of flowing water and then right into, I am the light of the world. But in the middle of that, you just have this Story And it's like, well, where does that fit in? It doesn't quite seem to flow in the story. Um, Other people say later on when it actually is found in the early manuscripts about the fifth century, um, people place it all different places. So it's not necessarily in John 8. You know, some people have it in John 8. Some people have it in Luke. Um, A lot of people don't even believe that this is John who is writing. You know, some of the language here is a little bit different than how John typically writes. And one of the main things that they'll point to is that John, when he's writing, he doesn't use the word scribes in any other place of his writing. Um, He uses um, the Pharisees and the chief priests. But here it says the scribes and the Pharisees. So again, a lot of people think, well, maybe this is actually Luke who is writing. Lastly, and again, there's a lot of different arguments, but lastly, some people say, no, this absolutely belongs here because in the 4th century when Jerome wrote the Vulgate, which is a translation of the Bible into Latin, he included it. And so if one of the early church fathers who wrote this uh, early translation, if he had it in there, it absolutely belongs in there. And so again, there's all kinds of debate about whether or not this does belong in scripture as a whole and whether or not it is written by John. And so I'm going to sit here and just say, I don't fully know. And I'm okay with that. I don't feel like I have to make a stance, but again, I think that there is absolutely something to be learned today for all of us. So, so what do we see in the story? I'm going to pick it up just in verse 3 here. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And they, they say in verse 6, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to me against him. So ultimately, this is a test. It's a test for Jesus. See, we, we've seen in the last couple of weeks and really last couple months, there's a lot of angst against Jesus, a lot of anger against Jesus as Jesus kind of stood up and said, I'm God. And everyone else is saying, hold up. All these religious leaders are starting to get very angry at him and they figure, hey, let's, let's create a test that ultimately makes him crumble because this is the best case scenario for them. If they can get him to self defeat himself, that's the best case scenario. They win in that case. So they create a little bit of a test. Right, they find a woman caught in the act of adultery, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, and they, they, the test is that the law of Moses says, for this type of person, we're supposed to stone her. Jesus, what do you say? Right, so what's the trap here? Why is this such a trap? It's a trap for a couple of different reasons. Um, if Jesus says yes, if he answers absolutely stone this woman right here, he would be obedient to Old Testament law. Right? We see this both in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Leviticus chapter 20, that the correct, proper response, according to the custom that he grew up in, according to the law that he upheld, the proper response is to stone this woman. Right? But they're also under Roman rule. They're not just under Hebrew rule. They're under Roman rule. Rome uh, has overarching authority over the world that they live in. And under Roman rule, you're not allowed to pronounce judgment on someone without a proper Roman court case. Right? And we see this later in John chapter 18, verse 31. So he's not allowed to, under Roman rule, give her a death sentence on his own. Additionally, we see that if he were to say absolutely stone her, this would be very much against the character and nature of everything that we've seen in Jesus so far. Right? We see someone who's going around with a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy. See someone with a lot of grace, with a lot of mercy. Right, We don't really see Jesus as some mercenary handing out honor killings. Jesus rather is one filled with a lot of compassion. So if he said, absolutely stone her, it would seem to go against all of the other nature and character that we see in Jesus. Right, But if he says, don't kill her, again, he would be disobeying Hebrew law, which would be a massive problem, but he would be obeying Roman law. So what does he do? There is no good answer seems to be the theme of my month. More dilemmas. How do we know what's right? How do we know what to do? We're going to dig a little bit deeper here because the primary issue that I see in this text is not necessarily trying to figure out what's right. But the bigger battle that's going on here is a battle between the chief priests, the scribes, and Jesus. And it's not about what is right, but it's about who is right. At the end of the day, we see that the chief priests, that the Pharisees, they're trying to put Jesus in a place where they are correct and Jesus isn't. Where they have the power, where they are right, where they are in authority, and Jesus is not. Again, the question isn't about what is right. The question is about who is right. See, if this was just a question about what is right, there would be significant effort to find the guy. Right? If this was just a question of what is correct... There would have been a lot, of, a lot of people trying to find this guy, and he should have been brought there also, right? We know, and I, I heard another preacher say this, that uh, bowling, yeah, that's a solo sport. Golf, solo sport. Adultery, team sport. There should be two people here. This guy belongs here, but there's no effort to try to find him. So we know that the primary concern isn't just about what is right. It's a jockeying for position. It's a jockeying for authority. And we see this back and forth between chapter 7 and chapter 8. The religious leaders are going to constantly accuse Jesus, trying to take away any authority from him. They they say that he hasn't studied. They say that he has a demon. They say that he came from the wrong place, that his witness isn't true. Later, we're going to see that they accuse him of being a Samaritan. You are the wrong guy. We are right. So I want to pause here just for a minute, and I want us to think about some of the tensions that we live in right now. Think about some of the, whatever thing that you've been frustrated by lately, some of the questions, decisions that you're having to make. At the heart of it, are you trying to figure out what is right, or are we trying to put ourselves in positions to be right? I think a question that we need to ask ourselves more often than not is, am I trying to show that I'm right, or am I trying to figure out what is right And guess what? Sometimes what is right is really hard to figure out. If we're not careful, we can spend a lot of our energy on trying to win and to be right. So what does Jesus do? See this in verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Here we see Jesus do two things. Now, the first thing that we see Jesus do is he establishes his authority. He is right. He says, oh, you guys want to play like this? You think that you're going to jockey position? and You think that you're going to show that you're right? Well, let me show you a little something. He starts to write something on the ground. And obviously it doesn't say in the text what he wrote on the ground, but there's a lot of different opinions about what he wrote. You know, some people believe that he's writing out a list of all the different mistresses these religious leaders have had. Some people think he's writing out a list of all the different sins that would disqualify them. But at the end of the day, what happens? At the end of the day, starting with the oldest, and because guess what? If you're the oldest, you have the most sin, because you've been around the long enough. And that's just true across the board. With the oldest all the way to the youngest, they leave. And by the end, there is only one person left right? So by the end, there's been a complete reversal of authority. First, it was the religious leaders who were saying, hey, respond to us. We are the ones who are right. And by the time it's all done, Jesus is the only one left. We see a massive reversal of roles here. Perhaps the best place that all of us can be is in the starting position of recognizing that there is only one who is right, and it's not us. There is only one judge. There is only one who is correct. And right now in a season where there are so many feelings, so many thoughts, so many opinions about how to live life, what's right, what's not right, maybe the best place to be in is to be in the spot that says, you know what, I'm not always right. There is one who is always right. Notice too, as Jesus is the only one standing there, nothing about this situation had actually changed except the attitude of the accusers. Notice Jesus, what he didn't do. He didn't say, hey guys, you actually got this wrong. See, uh, you thought that this woman was caught in adultery, but it actually wasn't her. She's got a twin sister, a mistaken identity. She's actually, no, that's not what Jesus does. Nothing about the case changes other than the understanding of the accusers of their own position before Jesus. She's still wrong. She's still guilty. Yet all of a sudden, no one's there accusing her anymore. Sometimes what we need more than anything is to be reminded that, you know what, I've got problems too. And before I get on my soapbox, getting upset at everyone else, maybe I need to put myself before Jesus. The next thing that he does is he establishes what is right. Again, the first thing is who is right. And then he establishes a new order of what is right. Um, It would have been right under Old Testament law to stone this woman. That would have been right, but he establishes a new order of what is right, a new way of righteousness, a way based on grace. He says this in verse 11, in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. How does Jesus lay a foundation for what is right? Because truth matters, right? Being right, it does matter. He, he makes it right by saying two things. One, two things that are spoken, one thing that is unspoken. The first thing he says is he says, I don't condemn you. And then he follows it up and he says, um, but you are wrong. What you did was incorrect. Stop and don't do it anymore. If all he does is say, I don't condemn you, that would be a problem. Right? If all he said is, hey, you do you, that's your life. Like you're not hurting anyone. You go live however you want to live. That would have been a problem. Right? That's kind of the culture that we live in today. There's no such thing as right and wrong. You know, and some people say, hey, here's Jesus. I don't condemn you. But that's not all that Jesus does. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, go ahead. I don't condemn you. He follows it up and he says, stop. What you're doing is wrong. Notice the order that he says it in too. He says, hey, um, I forgive you and stop. He doesn't say, stop, and then I'll forgive you. He doesn't say, stop, and then you'll be made right. He offers grace first. But how is he able to offer grace first? You know, because this is a situation where many, many people have been very wronged. Right, For adultery to happen, you have other spouses. Perhaps you have kids, you have neighbors, you have friends. There's a lot of people who will be hurt by this action. So Jesus can't just say, okay, I forgive you, it's all taken care of. So who in the world is Jesus to be able to say this in the first place? Right, This woman hasn't done anything against him. How is Jesus able to say, I forgive you, I do not condemn you? The only way for Jesus to be able to say this is if he was the one who took on her punishment. And this is the unspoken truth of this text. Because if if all we had was this text and none of the rest of the Bible, it really wouldn't make sense. You know, it it, it sounds kind of nice. Like, hey, if someone offends you, forgive them and tell them to stop. And that feels good for a little while. But there's something far deeper than that. Because righteousness does need to be upheld. The situation needs to be made right. Right. And the only way that Jesus can do this and make the situation right is if he goes to a cross and if he pays for the sin of this woman. And he says, hey, what you did was wrong. I'm going to take your punishment for you. I'm going to die in your place. And in that, I am going to give you grace. I do not condemn you, but stop. Do not continue this life of sin. And our, our world seems to be pretty consumed and caught up with the question right now of who's right. But the reality is we only have one who is right. And I think in, in a season where we can be really quick to point fingers at, hey, you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong and your opinion about this is wrong and I'm right here. Again, I think the best thing that maybe any of us can do is say, hey, there's one that's right. And what does he do? He lays down his life for others who are wrong. And he takes their sin and makes it his responsibility. And he says, I don't condemn you. And he tells us to live in his example. As we finish up and as we look at our lives, I think, again, a really great question to ask us is who is right? Not just what is right. If we start with the who, if we start with Jesus is right, perhaps all of us, Can find the freedom to live like Jesus did, to not be offended, to not get upset, to not be angry, but to be brokenhearted and say, Hey, I see what you did. It's going to cause a lot of pain, but I forgive you because I give you grace. Because the new way of righteousness is grace via the cross. So, again, as I wrap it up and as I say, Happy Mother's Day, all of us in this season are offended by something. I mean, it's just reality. But as as we look around into the world, I I think maybe the situation that we need to put ourselves in is, is like all these religious leaders who have a valid case. This case is valid. And maybe when Jesus starts writing something, maybe we'll walk away and say, okay, Lord, you're the only one who can judge. How can I love people like you do? How can I be gracious and compassionate and kind and generous? to people that, you know what, maybe they actually are wrong, but guess what, I'm wrong as well. Father God, I thank you that on this Mother's Day, in a season where it seems really hard to know what's right, I thank you that you gave us a passage where the same thing is true. It was hard to know what's right there. God, but through it, you give us an example of your extreme love And your extreme love, that is only possible because you went to the cross. God, if you did not go to the cross, you would have no right to be able to tell that woman, I do not condemn you anymore. But because you went to the cross, you can tell her that her sins are forgiven, that she can live in grace. And Lord, let us take that example and live that out in our lives as we are a part of something so much bigger. And we are not the judge, but you are. Lord, we love you. And it's in your beautiful name, I pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage, including resources like our application questions. Thanks again for listening.